You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com this has been one of the strangest political campaigns, certainly in my lifetime, I would say in many lifetimes. And I think the media has really been doing recently a lot of navel gazing in a, the best possible way, looking at themselves and trying to figure out what they've done right, what they've done wrong, and how they've covered this campaign, this very unusual campaign. And both as a journalist and someone who consumes news and information, I've been thinking about that a lot as well. Recently, I read an article in New York Magazine where 113 journalists were interviewed about all these issues. And the title of the article was The Case Against the Media, by the media. So I'm not the only one asking all these questions. It seems as if journalists everywhere are doing some self-examination about how the media has comported itself during the course of this election. And who better to talk about these issues than two veteran reporters? I would argue, and I think Brian Goldsmith might agree, my sidekick, Brian, with Two of the finest journalists of our generation, Bob Woodward and Tina Brown. Well, I definitely agree. These are two of the heroic characters in the history of journalism, not just journalism right now. Bob Woodward, of course, I think people have heard of half of the famous Woodward and Bernstein duo that helped to bring down Richard Nixon. He's written or co-written 18 best-selling books, most famously, of course, All the President's Men. Tina Brown is probably a little less well-known, but she's had just as storied a career. She was the editor of Tatler, the great British gossip rag. She then became, at the age of 30, the editor of Vanity Fair and transformed that magazine into what you see today, and then became the first female editor of The New Yorker. She's founded The Daily Beast. She hosted a talk show. She wrote a best-selling book on Princess Diana. She edited Newsweek. So we're really lucky to be joined today by these two great journalists to discuss the state of media in this crazy campaign. 
Bob and Tina, there has been so much hand-wringing over the way the media has been handling, have been handling this election season. And I've often wondered, 20 years from now, how will journalism schools, if in fact they still exist, review the performance by journalists covering this campaign? Let me ask you straight out, Bob, what do you think? Have have we embarrassed ourselves, uh, or is it still a relatively noble profession? <laughs> well, uh, I'll take a middle ground. First, I think there's been a lot of great campaign coverage at the Washington Post. We've done this book on Donald Trump. Had 20 people work on it. If if you read it, you will see. I think it's the best exposition of who he is. He spent 20 hours with the reporters. It's it's tough, but it, it lets him have his say. We're working on uh, Hillary Clinton in the same way. I think there's no book planned at this point. But uh, for instance, uh, today there was a terrific story that the Post did about how Bill Clinton got $17 million from this uh, private for-profit college uh, while serving uh, for five years as honorary chancellor. That's a lot of money. He helped. There's no question about it. His name probably assisted uh, in the recruitment of students and donors But uh, you see the convergence here of all of the Clinton enterprises, uh, the personal fundraising, the speeches, the Clinton Foundation, the Global Initiative, and and now this for $17 million is not bad pay for five years' work, which uh, in no way was full-time. Tina, what is your overall view of media coverage this go-round? I do not think it has been a, uh, you know, a stellar journalism election in any sense. I do actually happen to agree with Bob that I think that the uh, Washington Post coverage has by, been by far the best. It has eaten everyone's lunch on this particular cycle. The piece you mentioned today was was terrific. I, I will actually say, though, I think most of this coverage just seems very late to me. I mean, it seems to me that it's almost like journalists have have come so late to the stories that are obvious. I mean, they, they shout and holler about the big sort of, uh, the big issues of dishonesty, mendacity, but where are the details and the rigor that sort of drills down? I mean, what was to me a gratifying thing about today's story in the Post was that actually there was drilling down into one thing that was a really a very interesting thing, a new thing that people didn't know. I would argue that all these other stories about the Clinton, most of them are, so many of them are sort of innuendo and like massive drum rolling and it turns out to be nothing really there. Uh, that's what I resent is the huge drum rolls for things that aren't really there. And on the other side, Trump just for so long just seemed to get away with absolute murder to the point that these uh, sort of stereotypes were fixed very, very early in people's minds. So it's, you know, it's the, the, the stereotype of, 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 um, of Hillary being the narrative of her being dishonest was fixed so early in people's minds, it doesn't seem to be shiftable. The other hand, Donald Trump, all the revelations about Trump have come so late in the day that he's got away with murder all this time. So it feels to me as if, you know, the, the journalists are just not, are sometimes making more noise than they are, forensic searching in time. Okay, first of all, can I disagree, mm-hmm. uh, Tina, with that? Uh, the, the problem is 
so many of these stories, I, I went back and looked at the stories the Post wrote about both Trump and Hillary, in, in the case of Hillary, going back to 2014, about the foundation, about all of these things uh, in one form or another. The difficulty is there's so much out there, a good story, uh, an important piece of the puzzle on either of these candidates. I mean, all, all about Trump University. We wrote about it. Steve Brill wrote about it in Time Magazine. I, I remember last year being on one of the cable news shows saying, what about Trump University? And people just laughed. Oh, we know all about that. That's been in the New York Times, but it hasn't. And you, there has to be incremental coverage on these things to dig into them. But when you look, and I'm, I'm not going to bore you with the list of the stories uh, that ran, but when you really look, there was vast coverage about Hillary Clinton. You're right. Some of it is unfair. Some of it contains innuendos that are not supported. At the same time, there is just a lot there on both of these candidates. And uh, I, I think it's not just overwhelmed journalists. It's overwhelmed the public. Well, that that brings me to a question it seems that a lot of these stories don't matter. Um, I think this sort of overarching narrative about dishonesty, I think that's what Tina was saying about innuendo, sort of a feeling about candidates is this thing that seems to have a residual impact. But these sort of detailed stories, I don't know, is it the sheer volume of material that's being written about this campaign? Or is it that People just don't really respect or trust the press anymore. Bob, I was looking at this number. Gallup reported that in 1974, the year you helped bring down a president, 69% of the public trusted the media. Today, that number is 20%. So is it volume? Is it trust? Why don't these stories seem to have a bigger impact? Well, one thing I feel strongly is it is the volume that's one of the problems. I was just thinking the other day when you, Katie, interviewed Sarah Palin, and she said she couldn't fig say a newspaper that she read. Her ignorance became such a kind of defining feature that it helped to bury her. It was one of the major things that helped to bury Sarah Palin. When you compare it to the amount of ignorance that Donald Trump has shown in this election again and again and again in so many different venues, that hasn't stuck and that hasn't defined him. Why is that? Is it because, it's as, as Bob was saying, the volume, the very volume of the amount of stuff means that it's just not landing. Whereas when Sarah Palin went on that major news broadcast and said that thing, everybody saw it and everybody knew. Well, it wasn't just that that Sarah Palin said it was an important part of it. She said many other things, too. I think, But so uh, is Donald Trump, Bob, and it doesn't seem to be hurting him. Well, but the idea is there are, let's face the facts here, and that is there are a lot of people who support Trump uh, remember, he's got 40% of the people in the polls one way or another don't really care. I've talked to some of these people. They say, I, we, I don't really care that he doesn't understand this or that. He's going to be tough. 
he's a leader, they like his background and so forth. So it's not, and, and you're, you're posing, why doesn't that hurt him? Uh, because many, many, you know, I don't know obviously the number, but I think the polling shows on this, pe- people uh, really think this is a Washington establishment. It's Democrats and Republicans who have allied themselves together in this kind of shadow establishment, and Trump is outside of it, and he's saying we're, we're going to kick the hell out of it. And uh, people like that. So the details of what he knows are irrelevant. Now, the big question that's got to be addressed, what would he do as president if he became president? My, my answer to that question is that I th- we don't know. And in many ways, I think he doesn't know himself. How scary is that? Fair point. But, you know, people say, okay, well, you, you, you can be practical. You get in. Uh, we know politicians uh, get in office and they've said all kinds of things. And then they do something uh, the opposite, uh, most prominent. I hate to go back to Nixon. In 68, he said he had a secret plan to end the Vietnam War. Probably lots of people voted for him on the basis of that. I was in the U.S. Navy then, and I voted for Nixon in 68 because I thought he had the best chance of getting us out of Vietnam. We look at the record, which is very clear now. Uh, He didn't get us out of Vietnam. He withdrew troops, but he increased uh, the bombing and uh, certainly did not end the war. But Bob, to your point, it's striking to me that it isn't just about Trump not knowing particular details, like when you interviewed him and he seemed not to be clear about what Abraham Lincoln did, which was a very striking thing to me. Right. And if, if we should say, I mean, what when we interviewed uh, Trump uh, a number of months ago and asked uh, why was Lincoln successful, his answer was because he did some things that needed to be done. Well, uh, <laughs> it, it, it was... Uh, it was baffling and jaw dropping. But so, so, but you know, if if Sarah Palin had said that, you know, my point is that you know, why did why did it hurt Sarah Palin when she said she could see Russia from her back door? Why did that hurt her so badly? But this comment about not even knowing, which showed he didn't even know what Lincoln did, uh, nobody really. It didn't didn't boomerang on anybody. Well, and Tina, it's to me, it's more than that because. Trump has gotten more pants on fire ratings from fact checkers than practically any candidate ever. And that, too, doesn't seem to be resonating as much. But also, I think you have to factor in, uh, it's now uh, 2016 and Sarah Palin was eight years ago. And I think the whole media landscape uh, has changed significantly just in that eight years. And they're, again, to go, and it's not an excuse, it's an attempted description. There is a volume of stuff that is staggering. If you are in the media business, you can't even follow it. May I also just say that I think that the the, uh, universe that's been created now with 20 years of Fox News has really come to roost. And I'm very interested to see then the National Review, the 
uh, the right-wing National Review, they're actually now starting to come out against Fox and say it has created a universe which has been such an echo chamber for the Republican Party that they have become a cocooned universe in which Republicans could go on, talk to themselves, talk to an audience that was strictly understood from their point of view of the world. And in a way, that that volume of ignorance and the cycle of ignorance, the, the falsehoods and so forth that were put out constantly as facts – has taken has taken the land, you know, has actually borne fruit, and that's what we've got now. Is is an is a less informed electorate because they're watching the silo. Tina, I don't think you can blame it on on Fox News. I think it it's part of the story. Part but, of the story, uh, I, yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's not all their fault, but I I do think it's made a difference to the Republican Party. Look, it's it's individual voters who say they don't like what's going on. They do not like this establishment in Washington and in politics. And somebody who talks tough and kicks a lot of sand and is not up on the details of all kinds of things and all kinds of history, that doesn't matter to them. And I, you know, I don't know whether it's our job to sit in judgment of People, I think what we people who are going to vote for Trump or vote for somebody else, but try to understand and then present who these people are uh, in detail. Well, I totally agree with that in the sense that you know uh, there's every reason for people to be upset and disenfranchised. There's no doubt about that. I guess the question is much more: is like why don't certain specific things? make a difference. But we may be making a mistake in in making this assumption that it isn't hurting him. It's clearly hurt him a lot with college-educated yes. white voters who are normally a pillar of the Republican coalition who are leaning toward Clinton this time. It may be helping him with blue-collar voters who historically have voted more Democratic, but it's clearly having an effect in terms of the electorate that he's able to attract. We'll be right back after a quick break. What do you have to lose by trying something new like Trump? The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at Child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. 
What worries you both most about the way journalism has changed? You've been in the business for a very long time, and uh, as I have, and I'm curious what you think about the current state of journalism, because yes, the sheer volume, it's hard for anything, I think, to attach itself, any narrative, uh, although Brian said it is having some kind of impact, but, but we talked about volume and also, there's such fragmentation and, and niche viewing or niche readers, people who want to hear their own views reflected back at them. A friend of mine said, people are seeking affirmation, not information. So what worries you most about what journalism has become, acknowledging that some very good work is still being done, Bob? Well, well first, it's the also, and not just the volume, it's the pace and it's internet driven. And uh, it reflects the impatience and speed of the internet. Tell me the headline, give it to me in 140 characters. And so the whole technology of this has dumbed down the information transfer process to people. Instead of expecting a long article, uh, people expect something really short. It give give me the soundbite, and you, you know yourselves when you do interviews. Uh, you know, give us the bottom line, and so that takes people away from an in depth understanding of things. Now, that that can't be changed. That's a reality, and uh, quite quite frankly, and I think we have to confront this. No one has found a way. In television, radio, uh, print media, anything else, uh, you know, Buck Roger decoder rings. No one has found a way to connect the dots in a way that makes sense in a way that is of sufficient length or time that people will absorb it. I think that we should not underestimate the sheer impact it's having on the professionals themselves. You know, I mean, one thing I think that is extremely dispiriting for journalists is the constant, uh, to your point, Bob, but the, the constant demands to keep filing, 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 you know, posting five times a day, come in on Sunday and do Facebook Live now. All of these things, you know, the New York Times, for instance, I know that journalists feel that as the newsroom shrinks, they're being asked to do more and more and more in regard to, you know, short, time-consuming, time-wasting, you could argue, you know, bursts of this and bursts of that to feed the social media beasts that are out there demanding to be fed, to be fed. And, of course, it means that they can't get on with their story. I mean, they can't actually spend their time doing what you were just doing, returning the call from a source and sitting there on the phone for 40 minutes and getting the story they've been pursuing. They're too busy out there having to do some darn, you know, Facebook Live thing or whatever, which they have to keep doing to feed the beast. Well, let's and talk that about- is a terrible effect on the journalism because ultimately they're constantly filing before they're ready. And what uh, what is the Washington? I was going to yeah. say, what is the Washington Post, though, Bob, doing differently? You just mentioned a, a, a great piece that was done today. <laughs> They're obviously Marty Baron, who's a great editor in chief and he, somebody he who really cares deeply about good journalism. What kind of environment is he establishing for people at the Post that is it really liberating them to do this kind of good, solid, important, critically important journalism? 
like everything, it, it uh, starts with the owner. And uh, several years ago, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, bought the post. And it was a, a year ago, it was last October, I had a conversation with Bezos and I, we were talking about Nixon. And uh, Bezos said, could we have found out about Nixon before he became president? My answer is, I don't think so, but we could have done more and better before he was elected. And so the owner Bezos said, okay, what we need to do is make sure that we dig into the lives and backgrounds, do a full excavation of the two remaining candidates through after the primary process. And then he said, the editor, Marty Barron, will have, he will have the resources to do this. And so uh, the Post has hired lots of new reporters. I look at the front page or some of these stories, and I know none of the bylines. I do not know who these people are. But they, but they are fabulous reporters with experience, with the patience to dig in, and who understand what matters is incremental coverage, that you have to stick with the story, chase it to ground, and at the same time, be aggressively nonpartisan uh, and to be as fair but tough as you can. What do you two make of the of the now infamous New York Times stat that Trump got $2 billion in free media coverage during this campaign? He tweeted in July about the Melania uh, controversy, the plagiarism issue, that he believes that all press is good press. So by that standard, even if some of the $2 billion was negative, was that all helpful to him and propelling his rise? And let me just add to Brian's point by saying New York Magazine interviewed 113 journalists and 81% said they believe the media created Donald Trump. So how much is the media to blame for the very fact that he is the Republican nominee for president of the United States? Well, I think a weakness, of obviously, of uh, uh, the entertainment-driven nature of the time we live in means that Donald Trump is a heck of a lot more fun to cover than Hillary Clinton. You know, the fact is that, that journalists cannot resist where the action is, if you like, and Trump was the action. And in that sense, uh, I do think there was way, way too much that without question that he was allowed to go on there and blow hard away and do interviews on the phone, do have his entire hour and a half rallies That's right. covered without interruption. That's right. uh, yeah, that was insane. And, and, you know, the fact is, is that there would be sort of one sort of slightly combative second question. He would blow, blow steam and then you move on to your next question instead of doing what should have been done on television, which is like the, just refusing to let go. It's a lot uh, harder uh, you know, to challenge somebody on the phone than it is face to face, It by is, the way. but there's also the question of the second follow-up and the third follow-up and the fourth follow-up. We actually don't let somebody stop. You don't ask one question, you get a, a blow-off answer, and then you try a second question, you get a blow-off answer, and then you just move on. I d- you have to stay with it. If, if I may say and, and challenge that a little bit, I, I think that, uh, of course, we should have done more. That's always the case. But it's the voters who created Donald Trump. Let's not kid ourselves. He was ahead in the polls. He, uh, 
almost from the beginning, if I recall, he won primary after primary after primary. And now he's the nominee of the Republican Party. So you have to cover that. That's our job. Embedded in all, and, and you're right, Tina. I mean, the, these rallies were uh, spectacles. I mean, it was almost mm-hmm. like uh, the Roman Colosseum. Absolute, total in Roman a way. Colosseum situation, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, but you covered those, and then people followed up, and there was lots of examination. And if you put all the clips together, you would be astonished what you never even read or were aware of because there's been so much of Well, I can remember certain really good critical moments where it did happen, like with Chris Matthews when he really nailed a Trump about how when he said he, women who, who had abortion should be punished on his show, and he really was fabulous about that. I mean, he really drilled and, down. And then Trump took it back. Right, and then he Trump took it back. He changed his mind. He said, yeah. oh, no, no punishment. Oh, absolutely. But does, I mean, the, the Hillary Clinton partisans I know would say that it isn't just about the volume of coverage. It's about the tone of coverage, the kind of coverage. Uh, the Shorenstein Center uh, put out a study that shows that Hillary got by far the most negative coverage of any candidate in either party. Trump got pretty rah-rah coverage, at least at the beginning. Um, does the press need to be held account for the tone that they're striking? Some of the tone is has been bad. There's no question about it. But look, uh, Hillary Clinton has been on the public stage for so long. Uh, all of uh, her incarnations as first lady, senator, secretary of state uh, are going to be examined. And the whole email fiasco is not something uh, the media created. And if you look at the facts in this and you look at what we've seen, um, there are a multitude of stark contradictions. That needs to be covered. I think in a sense, the problem Secretary Clinton has had is, and and she now apparently is somewhat on the road to remedy that, uh, to not answer questions, to not have press conferences. Uh, I've known her for decades and interviewed her some in earlier incarnations. And I think, uh, Katie, uh, you and Tina know so well when you interview her and you listen to her, she's fabulous. Mm -hmm. She's incredibly informed. She can be very friendly, very open, very self-deprecating. And that's not what we've seen in the campaign. And so maybe for the next two months, we're going to get more. It is curious because actually she's at her best when her back's against the wall. I mean, I think her her finest hour in the last year really was the Benghazi hearings where she's grilled and grilled and grilled and grilled and never lost her cool. Seven hours, she was well-informed, she was on top of it, she never lost a beat, and yet somehow seems to have been fearful of the press pack who were way less informed and very often way less hostile than the Benghazi hearing. So I agree that you know well, it's not been a good strategy, but one that she seems to have adhered to uh, despite everybody saying she should not. But why, why are they doing that? I mean, she held her first press conference in 260 days, she did start talking to reporters on the plane. And I'm curious why why the hesitancy to, to actually talk to reporters, especially when Donald Trump was establishing the, the narrative every single day um, by talking to reporters and then 
creating a storyline that that was being adhered to by well, I mean, almost every a, news organization. There's a long theory, which is that if your if your opponent is killing themselves, let him go ahead and do it. Why should she go working herself to death, like risking sound bites of her own when he's busy falling on his face? It seems every ten minutes, and indeed, as Brian said, it is affecting him in the polls. But I think she has a deep seated fear of not being perfect that goes back, must go back way into her Oh, childhood. we're really getting her on the couch yeah. now. I mean, I think it's true. I think that's always been an issue for Hillary, that she can never really say, yes, I got that wrong and move on. Like she couldn't say, you know, I got the Iraq vote wrong. All the way through the last campaign, she always gave 15 caveats about why she, yes, she it was the wrong vote, but, 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 instead of just saying, you know what, I got it wrong bad consequences. If I could do it again, I wouldn't. I have to ask Bob about this this Paul Krugman column. And Tina, I'd love your view on it too, that Hillary Clinton gets gored. Basically saying the media coverage of her has been patently unfair. He compared it to what happened to Al Gore against George W. Bush during that campaign. And he writes, throughout the campaign, most media coverage gave the impression that Mr. Bush was a bluff, straightforward guy while portraying Al Gore, whose policy proposals added up and whose critiques of the Bush plan were completely accurate, as slippery and dishonest. And right now, I and many others have the sick, sinking feeling that it's happening again. True, there aren't many efforts to pretend that Donald Trump is a paragon of honesty, but it's hard to escape the impression that he's being graded on a curve. If he seems to suggest that he wouldn't round up all 11 million undocumented immigrants right away, he's moving into the mainstream. And many of his multiple scandals, like what appears to be clear payoffs to state attorneys general to back off investigating Trump University, get remarkably little attention. Meanwhile, we have the presumption that anything Hillary Clinton does must be corrupt, most spectacularly illustrated by the increasingly bizarre coverage of the Clinton Foundation. Anyway, I could go on and on, but Bob, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Okay, Paul Krugman is an ardent partisan and has uh, very strong views about this. Uh, In that column, he says, well, George W. Bush lied about what he was going to do with taxes. I spent months looking at the origins, development, and final passage of the Bush tax cuts. Bush was quite straightforward. Uh, He was going to lower taxes for everyone, and he did. And now the economic consequences of that, Krugman and others are very critical of, and and that's reasonable. Hillary Clinton's got to be accountable. Uh, she's running for president. And uh, the idea that, I mean, look, we all know hundreds of journalists. And, and yes, there are some who are partisan one way or another. But by and large, journalists want to get it right. They don't aren't sitting around and say, let's gore Hillary. Or, gee, I don't like Hillary. There's too much out there. There are too many questions. There's too much history and past, and it's got to be addressed. And it is. I I think the answer is for her, quite frankly, is to sit down with you two and, you know, Believe me, I've been trying, Bob, and they keep blowing me off. Yeah, but I mean, isn't that, I mean, Katie, I've known you for years. I have no idea you could torture me and I couldn't tell you what your politics are. I have no idea. You're a journalist. You're trying to figure out what happened. You would give her a 
fair hearing, but a tough hearing. But, you know, one of the things, though, that Bob, I think, that they fear, she fears, and what's so fascinating is that it hasn't applied to Trump, is the flying soundbite that defines you. I mean, her comment inside of a very long interview to Diane Sawyer, we were broke when we left the White House, right? That became for her like an Al Gore and the Internet nightmare. It's like... But, the, the, but that's the, the, what the, she uh, said. Yes, it is and what that, she said, but look at what... And, the, the, and that's what, what she look, meant. That is what she meant. It's fine. <laughs> but the question is, why did that end up being such a defining uh, sort of killer boomerang to Hillary? Whereas all because the things that Trump absurd, has said... Because it, it was absurd, Tina. Of course it is. Of course, it, of course it was absurd. But compared to the multi-absurdities of everything that Trump has said... Yeah, but, but it's... I mean, I don't get into this idea of, well, Trump's done 10 times as badly. Fair enough. And those things are on the record and they're under the microscope, believe me, by journalists and voters. But that doesn't mean you don't do Hillary. Of in course fact, not. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you don't do Hillary. But you're kind I think of, she's saying um, she's no, no, saying I'm why saying, why she why she's hesitant to put herself yeah, out there. Yeah, I'm saying that is why she's hesitant to put herself out there. Of course, you would. If well, you, does if she was, have somebody in her entourage who would, when she said that, you know, we were dead broke or whatever, say to her, "Hey, that was a mistake. You shouldn't have said that." That is not going to be credible, particularly when you've gone on, uh, you and your husband, to make all of this money. She made a mistake. She did, but that's, but that's the point. That's what she's so desperately afraid of doing. She's afraid that she's going to talk for 20 minutes about her policy, about criminal justice, and then use suddenly, you know, like slip and use a word like super predator. And then, it, it you know, it undermines everything that she said before. I think that the fear of that flying soundbite being this curse of, of, of her the next six months has but made her into not, a fetal position of, of fear. You know, I'm not, but, I'm not saying that, it's a but, good thing that she's in that position, but I think that is what's driving it. Okay, uh, Tina, if that's what's driving it, what's going to happen if she becomes president and Vladimir Putin confronts her? Is she going to be able to hold her own? I think there's all the evidence in the world that she can. But the idea that she's sitting around and worried about, oh, my God, I'm going to make a a slip. I'm going to say something that I felt or thought, you know, we're sitting here having this conversation and it's not scripted. It's not planned. You know, probably one of us. We're not running for president, Bob. We're not running (laughs) for president. Thank God. No, no, but we we live in a spotlight, and, you know, probably one of us said something we wish we hadn't said, probably me. and (laughs) Much more likely me, Bob. You know, that happens. (laughs) So much more likely me. Okay, but when that happens, then you kind of say, you know, I stepped on it. Mm -hmm. That was a silly thing to say. People are forgiving. Mm. Everyone knows people who say things that uh, are silly or a mistake. And and the idea that that drives her into a a defensive crouch uh, is not testimony to what I know is her strength. And yet I would agree with with Tina. I think that's true. I think it's she feels this is hers to lose. And why risk it if she's going to be really challenged, even though I agree also with Tina that that is when she is best. Her best. I mean, when, I think she's when she's really challenged about some specific policy. 
And uh, I just, I, I also think combined her, her unwillingness to kind of step in it, as you said, Bob, coupled with her inability to say, I screwed up. That's a pretty bad combination for dealing with the media. Okay, but whose fault is that? The media's? No. No, not at all. Well, I think the media okay. critique, though, is a little bit different, which is that Trump is being graded on a curve, that even if, as Tina says, he makes 10 times as many mistakes, if he utters 10 times the number of falsehoods, the coverage is presented as, as equal. And, and, and so, for example, when she gave a very well-researched speech, after which she answered no questions, so that could be a fault, but she gave a speech in which she you know, demonstrated in remarkable detail Trump's connections to a bunch of white supremacists and racist elements. And then Trump, in the middle of a rally the same day, yelled, Hillary Clinton's a bigot. And on a lot of the news programs, those two things were treated as equal. Um, and so, Bob, Tina, do you think that there is a, a reckoning that's going to happen after this election in which the conclusion is not, no, we shouldn't cover Hillary Clinton critically. The conclusion is that there's got to be some fairness in terms of the, the amount that the, that the whip or the zapper is applied to these two candidates. But, 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 but that's the internet culture in this impatience in speed. They both effectively called the other a bigot, right? So you cover that. Whether one was well-researched versus one that was off the top of his head, you can make that point. And I think some people did, but you you, you kind of have to cover that. I, I think, and, and this is what's I, I want to, you know, this is almost a constitutional point, but we have a democracy and people are going to vote and people are going to get it. People are a lot smarter. And the job we have is to put it out there. Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Post said, so our goal is no one can go into the voting booth in November and say, I couldn't find out who these two candidates were. And so we have, uh, you know, a lot of his money going to hire extra reporters and editors to make this, I, I think, unparalleled uh, monumental effort to answer that question for people. Now, the volume, I mean, you can't keep up with it. Can you two keep, can you three no, keep and, up with well, it? No. Well, that brings us back to where we were at the beginning, which is sometimes the volume, it doesn't matter what you're revealing with what rigor. If the volume is so intense, uh, people forget it. They have brain fade. And, well, let's face it, how many people are reading these great stories in the Washington Post? I mean, they don't have, they don't land with the kind of impact they landed in the 70s and 80s when the paper was, you know, one of four or five major places that people got their news. I mean, it's not like being I feel on. like mostly political journalists are reading what political journalists are writing. And I wonder how much it's sinking in. To the general population, which I, I think that's a, a, a fair question, and it, it's uncharted territory. But that doesn't mean we should stop doing what we're doing. Let's bring it home, Bob and, and and Tina and Brian. I'd love to hear your perspective on this. We're about two months away from election day. What should the media be doing in these these next two months? And I guess the second part of that question is: Will it really matter? <laughs> 
Well, more what matters is what the candidates do than what the media does, because it's a question of how they're going to handle these two months ahead. Uh, I feel that Trump, when he thinks he is losing, is going to really do the kind of thing you do when a retreating army retreats and starts to kind of blaze his guns in every direction, that he will go out in a blaze of bomb attacks, as it were, more and more crazily extreme, because he'll want to retain that cadre of the electorate for himself for whatever he does later. Hillary, I think, was just going to try and be as cautious as she can and not be forced to answer things that could create the flying soundbite, as as we've discussed. I think the media, I think presentation is very important. I do think that sometimes, you know, uh, you don't get a sense that this is the big story, pay attention. Of course, you have to do the incremental uh, coverage. But I do think, you know, the, the newsrooms have to sort of gather themselves together and say, what are the four big stories now? And just report the hell out of these defining stories and really make sure that they haven't left one stone unturned. I mean, the New York Times did a wonderful piece, I thought, on all of Trump's uh, real estate deals. Unfortunately, it came out the same weekend that the Pulse uh, bombing happened in Florida. So I actually didn't have the same impact, which I think it would have had if that tragedy hadn't occurred. Because of course, you're also racing not just the media coverage of the election, but you're also racing the wild news environment that we've been living in. I mean, in the summer, I think no one was really paying attention to politics because of this constant uh, tragedies that were hitting at every turn. But but when, when, when these stories don't land, as Tina said, Bob, do you think it's because it's more of a feeling that is motivating Trump supporters rather than details of his business dealings or the way he's behaved in certain situations or Trump University? It's it's this overall anger and this visceral reaction to him as a candidate and what he could do that means these stories just don't really matter. Well, yeah, but you you know you can't sit around. I, I if, if you go back to some of the uh, Nixon Watergate coverage, I remember Ben Bradley, our editor, would say, you know, just keep doing it, keep trying to find out what's going on. And somebody would say, well, it didn't get picked up by television. No one is talking about it. In fact, no one believes it. And uh, you know, a good editor. Uh, is going to say, just keep going. And the answer to to Katie's question, what should we do? Keep following it. I think in September and October, there is that uh, cliche about the October surprise, something happening that really turns things around. Events are Mm -hmm. going to occur that maybe uh, will determine or have a huge impact on the outcome of this election. And how the candidates respond to them, too, how the candidates respond to those huge events. Yes, exactly. But a a, a number of people have said from the intelligence world, the CIA world, that if there is a major terrorist attack in this country, uh, that will help Trump. Now, I'm not so sure of that. It depends on the timing, who was behind it, how big it is, what the impact is, because a lot of people will say, well, he's tough. He's tough. Now, Hillary Clinton's tough also in a, a different way, but there could be occurrences like that in the security f- terrorism field, uh, in the uh, world of the economy, which is still not as robust and resilient as it should be. So, you know, I think the message should be keep your seatbelt on. 
And I'd add one more thing to answer Katie's question, which is I think the press ought to focus on what the candidates plan to do as president. I think often there's a, a fake sophistication on the part of a lot of reporters that, you know, we don't really pay attention to these campaign promises because we all know that after they're elected, they they toss them out. But that's really not true. And the, and the political science bears this out. Campaign promises are the single best indicator of what the candidates, the policies the candidates plan to pursue in office. And so even if it isn't the sexiest coverage, I'd argue for, you know, really rigorous analysis of of what the candidates are actually proposing. What do their plans say? Wouldn't have worked with I, Richard Nixon, though, as Bob said. <laughs> right. And and that's the difficulty. No one believes it because when people get in office, they're going to do what they want or what necessity uh, dictates. And uh, there's a downside to that, but there's also an upside. Can I ask one question of you guys before we let you go? Uh, I've always wanted to ask this actually of of both of you as as two of the journalists I I admire most. Bob, you've written these bestsellers about Richard Nixon and you know him better than just about anybody um, and Tina, you wrote this bestseller of another person who was sort of at the center of the media maelstrom, Princess Diana. Do you see any of, of those two iconic characters in, in either of the, the candidates uh, that we're all covering this year, or at least in the media environment that we're covering? Well, Diana was the first internet uh, death, if you like. I mean, when she died... Uh, it was the first time that um, a celebrity death had been covered on every medium all the time, everywhere. It began the mass uh, carpet bombing media era that we have entered into. So in that sense, I guess she is more of a uh, in the Trump genealogy than she is the Hillary genealogy because, uh, you know, she started for this huge celebrity that then just magnified and magnified and magnified so that everything she did became a fulfilling, self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. And her relationship with the media was as combative and as uh, sort of, uh, you know, co-opting at the same time. So there, has, there, are, there are some aspects there, I guess. But certainly, you know, her, her humanitarian side was way more in, in line with Hillary. It's unfair to compare any candidate to Nixon, quite <laughs> frankly. And... Uh, uh, people have ascribed Nixonian tendencies to both uh, Trump and Hillary. I think that's I, I, I think that's unfair. Uh, Nixon was unique. He was a criminal president who uh, violated the law, who resigned when he realized that the entire Republican Party and Republican establishment had turned against him, as Barry Goldwater said. Uh, Goldwater being the conscience of the Republican Party uh, for many, many years said too many lies, too many crimes. And uh, we've had uh, lots of untruths from both candidates. Uh, No one has established uh, a crime from uh, either of them. I think think it's probably going to turn out okay because voters are very smart. I was off giving a speech some weeks ago uh, down south, and some man stood up and said, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Help me. And I said, uh, you know, look, you get to decide. Uh, you get to decide where you're going to get your information. 
it's personal. And then he, he, he wanted help. And I think we need to give him more help in our business, more information, even if people don't look at it or listen or read, uh, at least the data is there. And uh, in the end, majority of people are going to be able to say, I'm going to do this, and that's who's going to be the next president. So when you look to the future, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the state of journalism? I'm sorry. I, you know, like you people uh, have to get up in the morning and work at it. And uh, the thought I have, because uh, I think I can say this literally, when I get up in the morning, my thought is, what are the bastards hiding, (laughs) whoever they are? Because they are out there. And, you know, with political good, maybe good intent, trying to protect something, or maybe with uh, less good intent, but, but people are hiding things. I remember Al Gore once said, when asked uh, what percentage of what goes on in government that's of consequence do we know, and he said 1%. Right. And that's, of course, Gore being uh, exaggerating. We know a lot more than 1%. Maybe it's 50 maybe it's 60%. But there's a lot we don't know and about what goes on in government, and there's a lot we don't know about who these people really are. Well, I'm very glad that Bob is there digging away, <laughs> shoveling with his pick. Well, I could talk to you both. Brian, I know, agrees for hours. I didn't even get a chance to talk to you about the role Facebook is playing in news distribution. So maybe we can do part two of this podcast following the election. Bob and Tina, thank you both so much for your time. It, it was great, great to talk to you. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. So we want to thank Bob Woodward and Tina Brown for participating in the show today. We also want to thank Greta Cohn, the Reverend John Delore, and Zach Dinerstein for producing this show. Also a special shout out to Mark Phillips for our terrific theme music. And thank you for listening. If you want to leave us a message, please do so at 929-224-4637. As always, I will be standing by the phone. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps other listeners to find it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, folks, it's me, Mark Marin. And if you love podcasts you don't want to miss, now hear this. A really big podcasting festival coming in October to the Los Angeles area. Come see me and lots of shows you love. More than 30 great podcasts live on six stages. It'll be a weekend full of laughs, storytelling, and your favorite hosts up close. You've got earwolf favorites like Comedy Bang Bang and with special guest Lauren Lapkus. Plus, more great shows like Brilliant Idiots, Criminal, and The Moth. And I'm doing a special WTF as well. Do a VIP pass for meet and greets with your favorite hosts. Sit up close in reserved seating. Hang out in the VIP lounge and get more special perks as well. It all happens at Now Hear This, October 28th through the 30th in Anaheim, California, right near Los Angeles. Don't miss it. Go to NowHearThisFest.com to buy your tickets. Okay? Good. Great. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.